I'd like to talk to you tonight <clears throat> about jhana or absorption, the breath and the body. So as I mentioned this morning, uh, there's that fairy tale of the princess and the pea. And <clears throat> that actually, um, after many years of practice, um, is an analogy I still hold for myself. I again, haven't cleared out all the peas and all the levels of uh, my mind and body. But as I continue to practice, I find that there are new layers that I'm opening up to, increasingly new layers. And every time I open up to a new layer, often there's something I didn't want to encounter on that layer, which is why I stuffed it under that mattress, <laughs> deep on that level. So <clears throat> another way of thinking about that is, um, this goes with more uh, the childhood development model, that every year that we were born and we grow up is sort of a layer of our mind. And some of the things that get um, stored for us, uh, maybe unfelt or unprocessed when we're very young, end up being very deep in our mattress layering. And as we go to deepen our intimacy with our body, we find these stuck places. And we have to be patient, we have to be courageous, and begin to open up to what's been stored in the body, what's been stored in the heart, and what's been stored in the mind. And usually what has been stored is something that was very difficult to experience at the time. And not just pain. Sometimes there are overwhelmingly beautiful situations that are also something that we store. An amount of tremendous love that we might have received, and it kind of unnerved us, and so we flinched. And that flinching, we put a little pee <laughs> and that mattress, and then later on as we're kind of working, we have to open that back up, opening back up to ourselves. So this is really the progression as I see it, um, as the awakening process is deepening in our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, finding these places of contraction and being able to be patient there, compassionate there, intimate there, and you'll find they begin to un unfold, unwrap, whatever that tightness was. Another image that uh, has worked for me is <clears throat> if you ever have seen glaciers, maybe up in Alaska, for example, that come down right to the edge of the ocean, and when the sun is beaming down on them, the water warms up and the glacier warms up, and then a huge piece breaks off and falls into the water and there's all these waves. It floats around and then it finally melts because the water is also warm, warmer than the ice. Therefore, that water is a little bit bigger, there's not as much frozen, and then, but there's a new edge that's been exposed and it begins to be warmed by the sun and it breaks off, falls into the water, creates waves, then finally settles and melts. So <clears throat> we're reclaiming parts of ourselves that were frozen or stiffened by um, usually an experience that was overwhelming in some way, or not quite what we wanted. And so we stiffened up in resistance to that experience, and that stiffening froze a part of ourselves. And so whether you have the ice melting and becoming more fluid, or you're clearing and dissolving these peas layer by layer, um, that's sort of the, the model that I have, um, that I work with for myself and wanted to share with you all. And so <clears throat> there, we need many things to deepen in this process. 
many uh, capacities of heart and mind to deepen into the body and open it up, deepen into the heart, open it up and deepen into the mind. We need patience. We need some wisdom to hold perspective so that when I get in the middle of retreat, if I get flooded by anger, it can feel like something's drastically wrong because on the poster it showed somebody really floating and calm and happy. (laughs) And then I get this wave of grief or I get this wave of anger um, and it can feel like something is wrong in my practice. And really what's happened is that a new part of me is waking up that was frozen, a place I couldn't be conscious before. And in that you get a little bit flooded. If you're patient, you wait it out. It warms, it thaws, and then you find there's more capacity. You can breathe a little deeper. Your mind is a little more open. And in its place, where there was anger, there's forgiveness. Or where there was shame, there is a type of self-care. Or where you were craving for something, it goes on to your maybe to-do list. But you don't have to do it because you find a contentment without that clinging. One of the things that happens, why we create a retreat like this where it's quiet and where you're not getting distracted, is that one of the most difficult things that um, happens out in daily life is we don't have our full capacity to meet the experiences that we're faced with. We're somewhat uh, agitated. Too many things to do, too many distractions, and so our minds are a little bit scattered. And so we create an environment like this that the mind and heart and body over time can collect. And that collection process, as we've described, is sort of the cultivating of samadhi. If you just sit here in silence and don't do anything, your mind collects and you end up developing samadhi and tranquility. If you um, arouse a sense of well-being and reflect, you can also settle and your mind collects, not so scattered. So this is a process that you can either just let happen to you as you're going through your days here, or you can cultivate it. And a lot of what we have been doing is intentionally cultivating this type of collected mind. So I wanted to talk more about um, when the the Buddha analyzed his mind and then sort of universalized that to all minds, he saw some processes that were very helpful in developing samadhi and how to actually develop very deep uh, absorption. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, some of the, the, the factors involved with this collecting process. And then when you see it, it's possible that you can, it will help you with the cultivation of um, samadhi and deep absorption. It also might make it too analytical and therefore hinder the whole process because you'd be thinking about it too much. <laughs> but hopefully you'll be more uh, increasing intuition about how to um, help your mind collect. I have a friend um, named Pascal, and we were traveling around together. And I fell into this languaging where I was like, yeah, you know, this is, daily life is interesting, but um, God, sometimes I really miss deep practice. And he's like, and he, his friend, uh, English is his second language, so sometimes he has really interesting takes on English. He says, you keep calling it deep, you keep calling it deep, but when I am uh, in a long retreat, it doesn't feel deep. It actually feels very shallow. And I was like, okay, what does that mean to you? He's like, blue is just blue. I don't complicate it. I just see blue when I see the sky. And when I drink water, I'm just drinking water. It's not complicated. This whole thing of deep means that there are many things going on. And I find the more I practice, the more it's only one thing going on at a time. And it seems very easy. So... 
I'm not sure if I like this word, deep practice, deep meditation, and how to deepen your samadhi. And I say that because <clears throat> sometimes we can kind of think about, oh, wow, one day when I have this amazing samadhi, who knows what will happen? I can only imagine. And again, samadhi is just the capacity to be absorbed in what you're doing. It's like, oh, absorb, but that's like riding a motorcycle at 180 and you're so there. Like, no, it's, you know, chewing your food and tasting it and being with a friend and looking in their eye and driving without, uh, you know, texting. <laughs> so <clears throat> you're doing the one thing. And when you do the one thing, it's, it makes most things quite simple. Just do the one thing. And that tends to be a mind that has this absorbed quality. Your mind is very content doing the one thing. So just to demystify it some, that very deep, deep, deep samadhi, <clears throat> there are, on the way, there are some interesting bells and whistles, but the they fall aside as kind of um, the wawa effect. <laughs> There's In transitions, there are interesting things that happen, but the way it all settles out, um, it actually makes the mind a little bit more whole, a little bit more steady, and a little bit more present, which actually doesn't sometimes feel that exotic. I went to this monastery, the Pauk Monastery in Burma, and I'd come from this warrior monastery, and so I came to them, and people were walking around, talking to each other. I was like, oh, this is really pleasant, but I guess these people aren't practicing, um, because everybody where I was was walking slow, and you couldn't even talk to them, because they'd be so in their experience, they wouldn't want to break their concentration to talk to you. It, you know, monks and nuns were talking to me, and I found them very pleasant. But over the course of months of being there, I realized how phenomenally free they were, and how beautiful their practice was, and how amazing their minds and hearts were. And I got to see that, that their type of freedom that had come through samadhi was just, they were very gathered beings. And that didn't make them very exotic, it just made them very pleasant to be around. Like this nun, Sister Dipankara, and her teacher, Pauksaira, they're very wonderful people to be around. I had a chance to, um, during a, a certain time period in Burma, um, in the monasteries, we travel around a lot. It's the end of the rainy season and you just get invited everywhere and people want to celebrate. And so we would get in these trucks and we'd go everywhere. It was kind of fun. And I got to go with Pao Ksaida, <clears throat> who's an amazing meditation master. Just amazing. And his knowledge of the, of the Theravadan world is amazing. But we got to explore these huge caves. And he was like a five-year-old, so happy and so astonished and just just beaming. Like He loved the caves and he loved the truck ride out there. And <clears throat> he wasn't stern or stoic. Um, his mind is quite amazing, but it, his freedom has this sort of freshness to it. And the same with the Sri Dipankara. Just loved her company. And I couldn't even put my finger on it, except that she wasn't a complicated being. Very smart, very knowledgeable, very experienced but not complex. And I put that more to the development of this samadhi, which again is why I don't like the word concentration, because it, it, it wasn't the flavor of being around these people. They didn't feel concentrated. They felt very simple and whole. So <clears throat> turning our attention to um, what are some of the mechanisms that are developing, that are creating this samadhi that we're that we're experiencing, and you all are experiencing more and more samadhi. You may not realize it because you might be rocked by a particular opening, um, a pee in your mattress. <laughs> but 
I can see it in you, and sort of the feel. And people are moving slower, a little bit more, um, a little more gracefully. There, there's a sense of something being cultivated here in you all. And so many factors pull pull us together. Many factors, uh, patience and love and wisdom, they're all helping us uh, settle into ourselves. But there are uh, the Buddha point out points out five factors um, that come together to really enhance the absorption that you're in, to really enhance your ability to be present and whole. And so <clears throat> this is a little bit of a scheme that he used, these five factors, to, to develop them, coordinate them, and use them to uh, deepen your experience of these absorptions. So again, when I use the word absorption, in the Pali word as jhana, and so you could call these the absorption factors or the jhana factors. So <clears throat> I'll list them. Their Pali words are vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ikagata. And as they translate, uh, <clears throat> I again would want to start with uh, sukha, even though it's usually um, fourth in the list. But sukha is this quality where all is well. And even though the world may not have changed much from yesterday to today, you might find that on a particular day, you just walk around with a sense, yes, the world is not different, but today I feel well. And the next day the world hasn't changed much and you're more agitated, and you're more uh, restless. Uh, so the sukha factor might be lower on a day where you're struggling some, and the sukha factor is higher on a day where you feel ease. Many of you will probably feel sukha in certain circumstances, like going to the beach, being out in nature, being around children, um, experiences that you're enjoying. The sukha factor kind of is just where your mind, heart, and body relax, like into a very comfortable chair, and there's a sense of ah. That's the sukha arising in the mind. Sukha has the same uh, Indo-European language root as sugar. The Sukha and sugar are actually very sim um, same root. So it's the mind that's um, full of sugar. <laughs> but it's the sweetness, it's the sweet moments, this sense of, it's, it's a very resting, uh, relaxed, calm, uh, happiness, Sukha. The other factor, uh, Piti, it's a joyous, uplifting factor, Piti. And it's very... Um, uh, illuminating, very uplifting, there's a lot of curiosity, there's a lot of delight, there's a lot of brightness. And so often, when we're sipping uh, coffee or tea, and the way our minds brighten up from whatever state they were in before, that brightening often feels a lot like PT in the mind. You might feel in the body too, where the body feels a little more energetic, the mind's more optimistic, more buoyant, and there's a type of curiosity, and the mind is a little more clear and uh, agile. And so that tends to be this factor of piti. Piti, when it's felt in the body, tends to be, um, it feels like a very cool, uh, subtle circulation. You can feel when your body feels open, and you feel maybe even tingling. Uh, when you get surprised by something or delighted by something, you feel um, what we call goose flesh. That goose flesh is uh, piti in the body. That's so another factor that when sukha is arising, Absorption is very uh, easy. And when PT is arising, absorption is easy. 
when you get these two rising together, you have the settled delight. When they're one or the other, the delight sometimes can can be so delightful that it's a little bit stirring, and so your mind goes up and out, and you find many things delightful. When you have the, just the sukha, you can settle back and check out a little bit. And so when you have piti and sukha arising, it's sort of all the restfulness maybe of um, being on a raft floating down a beautiful river. The river's doing all the work and you're just enjoying it, but you're, you're so awed by the beauty. So you have both this relaxation and the sense of delight at the same time. And I start with these two factors, piti and sukha, because as I told you when I was... Uh, in Burma, and I talked to this nun, Sister Dipankara, and I only had a chance to meet her that one time for about 10 minutes, and then many times after that um, as she came to the States. But it's the one adjustment she made out of all these five jhana factors, which was very important. We were in a, really working on our concentration, um, samadhi jhana, in this monastery. In the first monastery, it was all effort, and then hopefully you'd get some delight and um, happiness. And she said, cultivate this sukha and piti before you begin focusing your mind. And so you notice that when we give, when Richard and I give our instructions, we begin with a sense of relax, enjoy yourself, see if you can invite a sense of well-being, just being here, listen to the crickets, feel the cool air, bring in the sukha, inspire yourself, feel this excitement of being here, that's bringing in this uh, piti into the heart and the mind, so that already there's a sense of, oh, this is wonderful that I'm here. That already is a mind that's starting to gather itself, collect itself. It really wants to be here. And then you can enhance that with these other factors. <clears throat> Classically, the first two factors that are offered are vitaka and vichara. I'm using the, um, the Pali... Uh, I say we, but often it's spelled a V, so vitaka and vichara. Vitaka, <clears throat> the way the way I um, first started getting a handle on these um, these five jhana factors and how they could work together. Vitaka <clears throat> is where you don't just make contact with something; you begin to really find intimacy with it. You really begin to savor. You really begin to. Um, engage your mind more with what's happening. Rather than just being on the surface and maybe a little distracted, there's a leaning into the experience or receiving the experience more fully. So that's this quality of vitaka. Vichara is when you can hold that interest, you can sustain that intimacy over time. So if you're with a breath and you're kind of a little dull, but yeah, in, out, in, out, and all of a sudden you like, brighten the mime up with interest and you actually begin to really track what one breath feels like in the body. That's the vitaka kicking in. You can really feel this mind being applied more to what it's taking interest in. And the vichara, um, it begins to hold and care for the experience so that you're not easily kicked off. So it begins to stabilize the mind over time in the experience. So if you can watch several breaths on a row, that's often this factor of vichara, and if you're taking uh, interest and you're really seeing things clearly, that um, that clarity comes with uh, vitaka. So vitaka, vichara, and that's the mind applying itself, like 
deepening the connection and then sustaining the connection. And often these are taught first because our minds are a little bit rattled. So like, sit down, apply your mind and sustain it. Again, if you do that without the sukha and the piti, if you get too far ahead with vitaka and vichara before you cultivate piti and sukha, it's just it's a lot of work. You're just sort of nobly wrestling your mind all day long. But if you bring in the sweetness of being and a relaxation and some delight for the mystery of it all, then when you go to apply your mind to ground it a little more, let's say in the breath, then it's right there, and it becomes really uh, uh, interesting to feel this rhythm in your body. So this is where all four start to work together. You can see that um, without the application of mind, you're happy and content and delighted, but you're not grounded. And this Vitaka Richara begins to ground you in, in whatever it is that you want to connect with, whatever you want to be absorbed in. And then the fifth factors. I'm jumping around here um, between them all. <clears throat> well, the fifth factor is called ikagata. And <clears throat> it's where you're, you're in one frame. You're in one view. You don't have two things going on in your mind. You have the one thing going in your mind. You're really engaging the, your friend. You're really engaging the uh, meal you're eating. You're really taking in that sunset. When <clears throat> that is a completely fulfilling experience, so the whole of you is there. You might find it would be even difficult to change your your mind. You might find thoughts trying to intrude and then they just can't enter because you're so engrossed in what's happening. That's this factor, this factor of ikagata. It's often translated as one-pointedness. And <clears throat> I have a, a reaction against that because I used to try to bring my attention to a point. It was, again... For me, it was not a good uh, language because I again was trying to pull everything down to a point and I just misunderstood uh, English in that. So you can have Ikagata on top of a mountain looking at the most beautiful view you've ever seen and it can be vast and <clears throat> there's nothing distracting. Sometimes when you get to the end of a sit, there were those uh, quote-unquote good sits, and someone rings the bell and you don't necessarily want to move. That's this factor of Ikagata holding you steady in what you're doing. And you're just held there. That's Ikagata when it's starting to um, be strong. Vichara is you holding yourself there intentionally. Ikagata, when it arises, uh, it's a deep preference to be there. So no holding is necessary when Ikagata is strong. Of the five factors, it takes the longest to develop. But when it develops, it's much more profound because you're not holding yourself against your mind wanting to do something else. Your mind is so deeply content with what's happening, no holding is necessary. So ikagata tends to be, when it ripens, really what is causing the very deep absorption. But the first time we go into an absorbed state, if we're trying to um, coax ourselves there, we're using a lot of this hand-holding of the first two um, Vitaka and Vichara. Is this landing, these five factors? Okay. So <clears throat> I'm going to go through another analogy just to make sure that you really get it. So again, as I was trying to make sure I understood these things, um, I imagined myself being a politician walking through a crowd of people. 
and you're shaking a lot of hands. <clears throat> and you could shake a lot of hands and not really care, but you're just doing it because you have to. A smile on your lips and you're shaking, but you haven't really made a connection with anybody. Then <clears throat> Witaka comes up and you actually feel the hand you're shaking. So you reach out, and it's not just a shake and move on. You're not just moving through. You actually firmly hold the hand with care. And that firm holding that comes in is different because you're not just passing somebody by. You're actually making intimate contact with that person. Vichara is where you take the other hand and you hold it. So you're actually you're committing to this hand handshake. It's not just a flyby. You're really, who is this person? So I'm actually going to, I'm going to make intimate contact and I'm going to sustain it. <clears throat> PT arises and you take a delight. This is a human being in front of you, someone you've never met before. It's fascinating. You get to meet so many of them. And here's another example. No two snowflakes are alike. No two people. Who is this mystery in front of me? Delight. So one hand, second hand, delight. Then you realize your schedule's bullshit. It's way too fast, and you're not going to meet anybody of any substance. And so you settle in, and you actually begin to hear this person's story. And you have the delight, you have the contact, but then they start telling you who they are. And you let yourself really be timelessly connected to this person and really enjoy them. It's not just the fascination of a new person. It's actually starting to really connect and hold and be deeply satisfied by this contact. Then in those rare circumstances, when ikagata is strong, time begins to fall away and you realize this whole idea of being a politician is so much smokescreen. <clears throat> and you step out of the box for a moment and you realize that all of this mess of politics and power and whatever is to support real people. And so even though you have people who have a complicated schedule and they're tugging on you, you won't break contact. And you realize that you're probably falling way behind schedule and you just don't care because this one, you and this other person are a full, full connection and you can even lose track of things that you should be elsewhere, but you don't want to be elsewhere because ikagata is really strong in that moment. And that's what a very absorbed state is like. And when all five of these factors are there, you have the handshake, you have the other hand, you have the delight, you have the satisfaction, and then you have this timelessness, this stability of connection. And you can do this, strangely enough, once you know these factors, you can do this with anything. So you can do this with a cup of tea. You can do this while driving. You can do this on the phone with somebody. You can do this in cultivating love. You can do this in cultivating compassion. You can do this in cultivating faith. You can do this while skiing. You can do this while picking gum off your shoe. Uh, <laughs> you can do this anytime. Once you see these are the factors. And I want to point out these factors because <clears throat> until you know what's actually happening, you'll probably blame the event. You'll probably, bl you'll probably say, oh, it was that person that drew these factors forward. You won't even think of it as factors. There's something about that person or that moment. But when you see what's going inside of you, you can universalize it. And you can actually be in this type of absorption moment by moment. Even when you're changing references, you have to break your ikagata just a moment so you can actually move to a different experience and then you can settle in again. Okay? So, <clears throat> um, you can become absorbed meditatively in many practices. And uh, in Theravada, this uh, school that we're in, 
um, they'd gathered and they looked through all the teachings of the Buddha and they found 40 different ways that he suggested you could um, develop these absorptions. Most of them are to balance out other characteristics. And so if you're a bit of a, um, a cynic, the Buddha suggested that you learn practicing be absorbed in love to overcome this tendency of being too cynical. If you're someone very easily drawn into falling in love or uh, amorous connection, he said you probably need to absorb a little bit more into the limitations of that so that you don't just always fall into this romantic connection. So many of the, of the 40 techniques out there are just to kind of balance out the mind um, from, from other tendencies. <clears throat> but once you kind of balance your mind out, all of these tenden- all of these practices come back to doing absorption of breathing and absorption in the body. And so that's one of the, um, the uh, discourses I wanted to share with you tonight, is how you develop deep absorption in relationship to the body. And again, that's uh, also to underscore the work we're doing here, developing absorption with the breath and developing absorption into the body. So even if you are getting absorbed in the, the beauty of uh, the blue sky, very beautiful, and then see if you can apply that mind that's absorbed in the blue sky back to your breath and back into your body so that you begin to saturate your body with this uh, absorbed quality of these five factors. So of, the, uh, of these absorbed states, as I said uh, the other night, um, there are many different monasteries throughout Asia, and all these monasteries have a different um, standard of what they consider to be a classically absorbed state. And so there are different absorptions that are possible, and everybody likes the one that they can do. They think the absorption that's deeper than what they've done is not necessary. And they think the absorption that's lighter than what they do is not, not deep enough. And it's sort of just, everybody has their opinion. And it's, it's funny how everybody tends to like what they do. And they say, oh, this must be what the Buddha taught because it worked well for me. It must be true for everybody. Rather than getting, falling into that trap, what you can see is that uh, your mind can be absorbed Uh, in a cup of tea, your mind can be absorbed with a breath, and your mind can be very deeply absorbed where you lose a sense of time uh, deep in the body. So there there are many ways that you can be absorbed. So this is just a quality that's that's possible for human minds. Human minds, hearts and bodies, they can be absorbed. And this absorption quality can deepen. So there are, uh, in in this um, school of Theravada, they've noticed that there are eight kinds of absorptions. Eight kinds of absorptions, and each one of them has a beginning point, and each one can increasingly go deeper. All eight start in one place and go deeper. Um, I'll mention them just so you get a sense of what they are. But the, the later four are not, are not so pertinent to our work here right now. So there's the first jhana, where all five factors are present, and it's called the first jhana. Um, The second one is dominated by this quality of piti, this delighted interest. 
and a lot of piti in the body. The third jhana is more based on sukha, more based on the sort of cool, relaxed, um, broad sense of well-being. And the fourth jhana <clears throat> is um, often very still and very equanimous. So it's not even got the uplift of the happiness. It tends to be a very still, uh, stable, um, quiet place. Just to mention these other four, and they start to get... Um, we, it's hard to be intuitive about them, so it gets kind of um, uh, intellectual. <clears throat> Going from a very still place, where you have a sense of... Um, stillness and spaciousness, you can then actually relax back into the sense of spaciousness. And so the fifth uh, jhana is more about this resting in the, the spaciousness around you. And you can extend that awareness of spaciousness to where you're even aware of all the space in the universe and you're resting in space. <clears throat> the sixth jhana, if you can intuit all this spaciousness, you must have uh, a conscious capacity to be aware of infinite space. So there's this next leap where you become aware of just what it's like to be conscious. And it's not a consciousness that's residing just in one body. It's a sort of conscious awareness that feels very global, almost universal, this sense of being aware, being aware in a very large, uh, open field. If you relax out of that consciousness, that sense of large, vast consciousness, you can go into a, a realm called the realm of nothingness, where you're not even conscious of what's happening. You're just in a sense of um, sort of a little, <laughs> a little more abstract uh, if we're thinking about it, but just there being a, a very quiet place where not much is going on. And not even a sense of space, not even a sense of awareness. There's just a very calm, void nothingness. And there's one past that where you don't even perceive the nothingness. You're in kind of an um, a incredibly quiet place where there's not even a lot of activity in the mind, um, not even an awareness of nothingness. It's even more remote. More useful than these higher ones um, are these lower four, the the four that are built upon um, taking the body, for example, or the breath, and settling in and seeing if you can be fully absorbed in one breath after another, or fully absorbed what it's like to be in the body. And then that deepening of that absorption will get you more sensitive, and then you will feel more of those peas, and you open them up, and suddenly, uh, as you work through the knots in the body, the body becomes more uh, absorbed. Your ability to be in the body is a deeper absorption. And then usually that means that you encounter something else that was a little buried more deeply, and then that opens up through you. So these first four jhanas tend to be, as people are practicing, to increase their ability to be absorbed, to be in absorbed states. Um, they're usually working, one, to just arrive in the body, in undistracted ways, so that first jhana is a very um, a nice place to stabilize your first deep contact with the body, where you don't get kicked off very easily. You're just really in with your heartbeat. You're really in with your breath. 
you can feel your back, you can feel the whole of your body and you feel very peaceful, content and delighted to be embodied. And you might get that for five seconds or five minutes. You might get that for a, a window opens up. And as it opens up, you then find you have to do a little more work. And as you go through that working, that layer, you can open up a little further, a little more uh, stable, deeper, and maybe a little longer in this absorption of what it's like to be in the body. The, um, <clears throat> the Buddha had some really beautiful descriptions here. And when he's talking about the mind, sometimes his lists, um, they're fascinating, but they can get a little mechanical. And in this, um, in this sutta where he's talking about what it's like to wake up through the body, he has some, uh, this is a nice little um, images to go through it. So he says that the, um, <clears throat> the first jhana um, is sort of like when, um, back in his day, there used to be someone in the village who would make cakes of soap. And they'd travel around with dry soap powder, and then when they needed, they would add water to the soap powder. They would mix it like dough, and then you would have this little ball of soap. And so he used this analogy that the first jhana <clears throat> is that you keep adding water to the flakes and you keep kneading it until you have a very even distribution of water within the snow, within the soap flakes. And you don't have too much water, there's nothing leaking out, but there's no powdery part. You have the perfect amount of water saturating the soap flakes and you keep kneading it until it's homogeneous, homogeneously distributed. What that reflects in ourselves in the first jhana was like to be in the body is that you're willing to feel your arm, you're willing to feel your back. It's like, I'm willing to feel my back, but not my right shoulder, because, oh, it's so stiff. It's like, okay, so you're holding that out, and you're working your awareness through these other parts, and you kind of get to this first acceptance of the body with a few pieces left out. And then you develop a little more courage, a little more patience, and you begin to feel that part of your body, and you begin to penetrate your stiff shoulder, and go down the arm, and suddenly you feel it. Your whole body, you're settled into it, and you have access to it, and you feel the circulation through it. And that's what people are calling this first jhana. And then you find you can keep extending the first jhana by getting a little, working that powder and that water so that it really mixes, and so that it's like, okay, I'm in my whole shoulder, but you're right, I left out this one little bit up here. I, I, I guess I was a little numb behind my ears. Oh, interesting. I didn't go as deep into my face as I could have, and you just start keep working it and working it, and it's a pleasure to work it. It's a pleasure to incorporate these parts of your body back into your awareness. So that first jhana, as you're working the soap powder and the water, um, it's uh, the vitaka vichara, you're applying your mind, you're holding it, you're working it. And that can, that can keep extending. That can keep extending deeper and deeper into the body. The second jhana, <clears throat> you let go of vitaka and vichara. And what you do, and this is some of the language we, you, we've been using, rather than working hard, you say, I wonder if just that delight, that delight that I had of being there and exploring my body and recovering my body, I wonder if rather than working at it, just that delight would be enough to hold me in this beautiful relationship to my body? What if I didn't have to work at it? What if me and my body were just tight? And the way that we got tight is just delightful. So I'm just going to delight in there being my body. And you don't have to work it so much. You find suddenly 
You're there and you can feel your body and there's no effort required. This is the feeling of the second jhana. You're using the delight in the relationship to your body to be what has your attention stay with it and not be distracted. The image that the Buddha used here um, was imagining a pond that wasn't the collection of rainwater coming from the outside, but there was a little bubbling spring deep within it. And the spring is bubbling up and it's filling the pond. So it's the delight that's bubbling up in you and that's what's supporting you. That's what's suffusing you is the delight that's bubbling up rather than working it like you were the first jhana. You settle in and let delight bubble up through you. And the delight is what is uh, what's holding you in relationship to your body, in relationship to your arms, your legs, your torso, your neck, your back. It's just delightful to be there. And you find no efforts required. It's more of an invited state. You invite it to come, it shows up, and you settle in and just delight in your body. The <clears throat> third jhana state, when you're in the second jhana and you're feeling the solace delight, and um, if you kind of look to the side and don't get so uh, preoccupied by how delightful it is, you get a sense that there's this beautiful sense of well-being, that you're finally deeply at home in your body, and it's a great refuge. It's really, really soothing to be in your body. In the, in the second jhana, because things are so delightful, that's really what's standing forward. But then you can ask yourself, I wonder if just this calm delight, or this calm happiness and well-being could be what holds me in my body. So the body doesn't have to impress me with beautiful feelings. It doesn't have to delight me. It doesn't have to fascinate me. I'm going to develop a relationship to being in the body that's just held by the great, settled, contented happiness that I get to have a body at all. And in daily life, we're just usually too chaotic to have that be the glue that would hold us in our body. But once you pass through the second jhana, the second absorption in the body, you get to invite yourself into this deep calm. And then you find, all of a sudden, the, uh, the delight, this bubbling, this fascination does um, evaporate and you're held with the pulsing of your heart and the flow of warmth across your skin and feeling the bones that are holding you up and the soft tissue around you. And you just settle back into this home, this deep, deep, calm refuge. And it's deeply satisfying to kind of be in the body just as it is with deep appreciation. And that's the taste of the third absorption in the body is just this held by sukha, held by this relaxed, contented happiness. If you can stabilize this sense of happiness and get to know and get very familiar with it, you find that from this state, again, it's very easy to forgive others because you feel deeply uh, well. And so you don't really want to hold any um, grudges against people at this point. You have a beautiful relationship to your body. You don't finally don't mind the weight that you are <laughs> for many people. Um, you don't mind the, your organic hair color. You don't mind anything. You're just so happy to have this body and be settled in it. There's a lot of forgiveness, a lot of healing that happens uh, when you're in the sukha state 
generated by your body. So deeply appreciative that you get to have one at all. As you stabilize that, and you guys have all tasted this, you may not want to admit it right now, and but you've all had moments where just being in the body and appreciating a single breath is a taste of what that's like. And sometimes the breath is, is fascinating, and sometimes it's just very settling. And that's the direction of this third jhana, settling and being deeply content. While you're in the third jhana, <clears throat> you can ask a, sort of a deeper question. I wonder if just the truth of my body, just its existence, just that there is warmth, whether I appreciate it or not, whether I can feel a breath or not, just that it is, could that hold me here? So the body doesn't even have to reward me with pleasure. It doesn't even have to be a home. It doesn't have to give me anything good. Just that it is, and it's my actual place of home reference. What if I just get really still, give up the need for it to be pleasant, and just settle in to the truth that I have a body? And it can be very warm, but as you settle in, what predominates the sense is just that it's very still. So the description that the Buddha had of the third jhana, where you're floating the sense of well-being, he had this image of looking into a lotus pond and seeing uh, lotuses that were coming up out of the mud but hadn't yet broken to the surface where they could be blown around by the wind and the waves. And they were just buoyed by this water and floating there. That's, again, what the third jhana feels like. You're just floating in the sense of well-being, completely surrounded by the water of the pond, weightless, but floating. And then the fourth jhana, the description he has is imagining somebody lying very still and you draw a, a light um, sheet over them and rest it on top of them. And so there is this sense of being kind of in a cocoon, resting very still, and being still and deeply, deeply at peace without even the agitation of the happiness. And the funny thing is about the fourth jhana, it actually feels more relieving to be still and peaceful and to even be a little bit agitated by the happiness. So uh, so satisfying is the stillness, so satisfying is the peacefulness, that that ends up what's holding you in your body, this backdrop sense of stillness and peacefulness. So <clears throat> these are sort of a, a felt description of what these absorbed states are like. And... <clears throat> We all feel them on some level, and then as we keep practicing and becoming more familiar with the body, working through the peas and the and the glaciers, whatever your model is, opening up, settling in, they become more accessible, and each one has a capacity to keep deepening. So you deepen, you open, and each time you open, you go through probably a layer of the dukkha, probably some type of self-struggle around shame or guilt or frustration, that opens and dissipates and there's more of a settling. You can settle into the body. So there's a lot of wisdom and practice needed even to get into these states. And then from these states, you can uh, ask from, let's say, a place of deep contentment, what's really worth doing with my life? 
now that I'm in this body, now that it's beautiful, what's really worth doing? And you might find that generosity comes out very easily, or a sense of renunciation. I really don't need the complexities of my life. Or you might find that um, <clears throat> you can witness the way your mind works because the backdrop is still. The more still your mind and body are, the more you can see how it's actually working versus being something that's so chaotic you can't make heads or tail over what's actually going on. So it takes a lot of cultivation of wisdom, working through the three characteristics that um, Richard brought up last night, to even open and settle and open and settle into these absorbed states. And then from these absorbed states, you can then consciously turn to look at these characteristics on new levels and deepen uh, further looking at patterns of clinging, patterns of resistance, patterns of self that you were trying to bolt down, so you have security in who I am as a noun, and out of a deeper sense of well-being, you can unbolt them and let them melt open, and trust that your more fluid sense of self is enough. You don't actually have to claim who you are. You can just be who you are. So in that way, wisdom and samadhi uh, keep deepening with each other. And the Buddha said in one part, uh, there really is no deep concentration without wisdom. And there really is no deep liberating wisdom without some degree of samadhi, some degree of presence and absorption. So they work in tandem, and they both support each other as we keep clearing through. And again, as you clear through, you find beautiful states, and beautiful states are resting, they're rejuvenating. And then often they make space for you to have the capacity to do a little bit more work of unclinging, a little bit more work of loosening your sense of self that maybe you were anxious about, and trusting more of the, the flow of experience rather than trying to control it so much. And so for that, you can increase your um, wise approach to these three characteristics. So you can allow things to change. You can let things come and go in their, how much satisfaction they give you without clinging to them. And you don't need such a um, heavily defined sense of who you are. You can trust more things unfold as they need to. And so these jhana states can heal you and open you towards that wisdom expansion the expansion of wisdom allows you to relax more fully and find these absorbed states. And <clears throat> maybe calling them states is to make them too much of a noun. They really are a flow of experience. And they arrive for some period of time, five seconds, five minutes, longer. And then conditions shift and you come out of the absorption and you find yourself back uh, in some other expression of who you are. You know, pumping your gas or... Um, talking to a friend and you're not necessarily at this depth of absorption that you might have had on a retreat, for example. Anyways, that's a walk through <clears throat> the jhana factors. And then as they collect and begin to be strong, how they actually work together to deepen into uh, states of absorption. The f these four are very classical and you can actually invite them in that progression. First you work your attention through your breath and through your body and letting go. and It's a lot of work, but you find you can then 
find periods of resting, but it takes some, some work, some hand-holding, then you can relax back and just let the delight of what of being present hold you to whatever it is you're connecting to. You can settle back a little further and let this calm sense of well-being be what holds you to your breath, to your body, to your connection with your friends, to whatever it is that you want to be in union with. And then below that you can find this peaceful stillness. Um, these are That's the progression of how to develop absorb states. And it comes with being familiar with um, these five jhana factors and seeing when you look into your own heart and mind do you have a lot of this uh, willfulness are you applying your mind with these first two factors that we talk about vichara are you shaking the hand vigorously with no interest or delight or are you um, not holding someone's hands all that carefully because you're just in a sense of floating well-being see if you can like you would shake someone's hand contact the breath sustain your attention with the breath Take delighted interest in the breath. Be deeply contented by the, by the breath. And see if you can let go of all the things you'd rather be doing so that the breath is uh, so fulfilling that when you hear the bell rung, you don't necessarily want to leap up to do something else. You can taste these five factors and see them coming and going, but as you cultivate them, they get stronger and they're more accessible. And they seem to be the underpinning of these other absorbed states and open up their capacity to a deeper and deeper level. <clears throat> I'd like to end with um, something that's probably interesting and somewhat uh, entertaining. If you take these states of absorption to a very high degree, and that's when I was in Burma, um, talking with like Sister Dipankara, for example. But there were hundreds of monks and nuns who were going very radically deep, taking months and years to develop these. We start to get into a realm of possibility with the human heart and mind and body that we've given up in this culture and call fantasy, or we call um, it's, uh, you know, it's stuck in the, in the places of... Um, Thousands of years ago, there are these fairy tales. But I actually was with people who had these capacities. And so also in the sutta, um, the Buddha talks about the benefits of mindfulness of the body when taken um, deeper and deeper. Uh, you overcome senses of being fearful, of being easily agitated. You know, that's something we can all feel. But then when you go even deeper you start to get to the supernormal powers. <clears throat> and I actually met the people who could do these things, which was a really good paradigm shift for me because I kind of thought that they were in the realm of fantasy, but I saw people have these capacities. You end up having a divine ear so you can hear things at a distance. And I knew people who heard verbatim conversations that were miles away, and they came and they... they uh, wanted to check that with people and they were able to report what the conversation was. So it wasn't a sustained capacity, but they opened up this capacity and suddenly they're just hearing people talking and it's uh, many miles away. So if you ever get into the, these things, they're not necessarily fantasy. 
you open up the divine ear, <clears throat> you can um, read the minds of others. So you can tell what's going on in someone else's mind. And when I heard that, I was like, really, you do that? And it's like, we don't do it that much because it's not that interesting. <laughs> if somebody else is in a state of jhana, it's blissful, but you know, you can already do that, so why, why look at their mind? And if they're not in a state of jhana, gross. <laughs> they're worrying about their taxes or wanting to kind of like sue their partner or whatever. It's like, who wants to like be in contact with that? It's not, it's not that beautiful. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's the interesting, there's these things where you can uh, make yourself many bodies if you want to do many things at once. Um, you can dive and swim through the earth if you want to do these things. Um, you can have a divine eye and you can see um, what happens when people die and you can see their rebirth and you can tell on what plane they were reborn at. Which, you know, for our culture, we don't really even know we need to do that. <laughs> but it was interesting to see people who had that capacity to track what happened from one life to the next. And it just opened up for the possibility for me that that was actually possible because I didn't really come with a multi-life um, perspective. But again, these people could see things um, happening in other realms than our own. Um, <clears throat> but beyond all, you know, so he goes through all these supernormal powers and he said the most important thing that comes at, with all this absorption is your capacity to untangle the patterns that cause yourself suffering. So beyond all these supernormal powers, the, probably the most important power is the ability to go into your own heart and mind and begin to untangle your fear and your resentment and your craving for what you don't have and your um, resistance to what you do have and find all these patterns and untangle them. So as my started with an analogy, I think that <laughs> the greatest gift these things can give you is clearing all the peace from your mattress. And may that be so. So let's just sit for a moment and let that settle. So starting with that sense of piti and sukha, if you can settle and arouse a sense of well-being, calm, patient, satisfied well-being with things just as they are in this moment. And if you can add with that savoring and delighting in the beauty of this moment, so you get the settledness of the sukha and the delight and appreciation of the piti. And now like you might grab the hand of someone your meeting and grab it warmly, firmly, 
See if you can bring your mind, bring the way, bring the flow of your attention to your body and to your breath and see if you can apply yourself and sustain yourself in contact with your breath. for a moment this was all you needed could you allow yourself to be fully content and settled in with this simple roll of one breath rolling in and one breath rolling out and find that there was no better place to be Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.